0: We're back in the book of Daniel this morning, continuing our series, we're uh, picking up where we left off last week in Daniel chapter 4, so please, if you are able, let's read scripture together, let's turn there together, Daniel chapter 4, last week we considered the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And we saw King Nebuchadnezzar, the raging, tyrannical king of Babylon, and how he witnessed the miraculous power of God, and then he blesses God in the end. But, as one commentator puts it, this leaves him half converted, if there was such a thing. Chapter 3 began with... Nebuchadnezzar threatening capital punishment for everyone who didn't bow to his idol. But the chapter ends the very same way in verse 39. Now he threatens whoever speaks against the God of Israel shall be torn limb from limb. It's still about his power. It's still about his might, his force, his control over the people, his kingdom, his attempt to rule over the worship of The people, and this then is where we pick up in chapter 4. We'll read the entire chapter. It's a long chapter. I'm going to try to read it fast. Uh, It's a very long chapter. Um, I'm going to try to read it fast. There's a lot to cover here, but chapter 4, fascinating story, but it is God's word. Let us receive it as such. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the version, visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. It reached top, Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with a beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliness of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw in you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which, is grew, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole, end of the whole earth, whose leaves were Beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which there was food for for all, under the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reach reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree. And destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon you, the king, my lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity all of this came upon king nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of babylon and the king answered and said is not this great babylon which i have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory of the glory of my majesty Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Father, we appeal to the king of heaven, and that through your word that you would bring us low To humble us by your truth. Lord, for we know that you give grace to the humble. Would you do this for us this hour, we pray in Christ's name. the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're an Israelite, reading the book of Daniel, and you're in exile, you're absolutely thrilled at how things are going up to this point. In chapter 1, you saw Daniel and his friends prove to be wiser and stronger than even the best of the best in Babylon. In chapter 2, you heard this vision of a great stone that crushes um, the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdoms of this world. And you rejoice to know Babylon will not stand forever. And in chapter 3, you read with a fiery furnace, you saw those God's people stand up in the face of idolatry. And you learned and you saw not even the rage of a king An all-powerful king can harm God's people when the Lord is on their side. These are going great. But now you get to chapter 4, there's something a little bit unexpected. Something I might say, perhaps deeply troubling. Chapter 4 opens with King Nebuchadnezzar breaking out into doxology. He praises the Lord, the Most High God of Israel, for what? What? The end of verse 2. For what He's done for me. What He's done for me? Are you kidding me? This pagan idolater? This dirty, wicked tyrant? Praising God for what He's done for me? You know, the king that sacked Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The king that destroyed, essentially looted the temple and took the temple gold and uh, and made an idol of gold out of it. The king who separated families, kidnapped the best men of Israel. The the king who ended the true worship of God. The king who threatened his servants with dismemberment if they couldn't read his mind. The king who threatened a holocaust for all those who didn't bow down to an image of himself. This guy is now the recipient of God's grace and mercy? I mean, this would have been like Hitler. At the height of his power, if he had ruled the world, publicly praising God, saying, thank God for the mercy that he's shown me. What? An Israelite would be astonished. They would be like, why is this guy still in charge? Why aren't we back in Jerusalem? Why is there still paganism and idolatry in our society? Why did God show him mercy? Why didn't he get what he deserved? I mean, it was our land that was invaded, it was our families that were slaughtered, it's our church that's been overthrown, it's our people, God's people, who are being persecuted. Where's the justice? This is not what you'd expect as an Israelite. It's certainly not what you would expect regarding um, how they believed that the kingdom of God would grow and advance in the world. Now, brother, we live on the other side of the cross. And in this perspective, we can look at this and we can say, okay, this is like, okay, maybe Jonah and the Ninevites, right? He was very angry that God was going to show them mercy. But we look at this and we say, oh, here is a glimpse of, Of how God plans to usher in the Gentiles. Which is true. And we can look at this and we can say, yes, this is why the New Testament calls us to pray for kings in authority. That they might come to a knowledge of the truth. This episode of Nebuchadnezzar is good news and evidence of that. But things weren't so easy for an Israelite at that time. And and even more than this, the one reason why they weren't so easy is because there's no indication from the book of Daniel or from secular history that anything changed in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar turned to the God of Israel. The exile didn't end. Jews weren't delivered from persecution. True worship of God wasn't restored. Paganism didn't leave the culture. The culture wasn't changed justice wasn't now a prominent aspect of society for them reading this and even for us what real good is this God's people are still marginalized they're still persecuted the culture is still evil evil governments are still in control paganism still reigns this doesn't seem to be how the kingdom of God advances but that's just the message that's the message The message here is that even when God's people are oppressed and marginalized and persecuted, God's purposes march on. Even when there is a beastly reign of evil government and power, God is still in control. God is still accomplishing His will for the good of His people and the glory of His name. Brethren, this shows us that the advancement of the kingdom of God does not come through political revolution, It does not come through the advancement of earthly kingdoms. It comes through the conversion and salvation of individuals. Coming to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we see with the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We see how God's kingdom advances. We see how God rules the king and kingdoms of the earth. Not how we may think or prefer that he rules them. And we see how it is that God saves sinners. That's the message here in Daniel 4. I titled the sermon, uh, The Gospel of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a little provocative, given what we know of him. But that's what this chapter is. It's a testimony. One commentator called it a gospel tract. Uh, It mirrors the Psalms, this book, uh, I mean this chapter. It mirrors how the Psalms, Psalms will often open with a doxology. They will, uh, the Psalmist will recount a personal trial or trouble and then talk about how God delivered him out of such and then it will conclude with a doxology of praise. That's the structure of this chapter. In fact, uh, the the Jews, the uh, the Talmud uh, called this, uh, said here off the top of my head, that Nebuchadnezzar crowns all the praises of the psalmist. This is a psalm in many respects from a Gentile and pagan king. But for us to break down the gospel of Nebuchadnezzar, I want us to consider it under three points. Uh, Because it's a gospel story, I thought it was just easiest to go creation, fall, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. That's what we see here. First, let's consider the creation aspect of this story. Truthfully, chapter 4 opens with a prologue. A prologue tells us what to expect in the story. A prologue here, a doxology of praise, where the reader reads this and is thinking, wow, I've got to hear this story to come. How did Nebuchadnezzar be brought to this? But after this prologue, where he tells us what he's going to tell us, Verse 4 opens with, it all began, there I was, at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. These were, of course, the golden years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Uh, We estimate that this dream uh, took place at least 20 years after the dream of chapter 2. Most likely closer to 30 years or more after the dream of chapter 2. But we get kind of a replay of chapter 2. Again, he dreams another dream. Again, he's left troubled. He's alarmed. Verse 5, he's alarmed. He makes this decree. He's still ordering people around. All the wise men, come and tell me what this means. Uh, again, as we considered in chapter 2, something about this dream that um, he knew was bad. Clearly, this guy had a, a, a guilty conscience. You know, uh, the wicked run when no one pursues, um, in some sense. He knows this is bad, uh, so he gets all of the best sources uh, in the kingdom to to try to tell him what it means so he can counteract any threat that appears here. And again, this is all a replay of chapter 2. A dream, a trouble, the best of the best in Babylon unable to tell him what it means, and so God sends a divine messenger in Daniel preach to him. Isn't it interesting how Nebuchadnezzar didn't learn his lesson the first time? Right? It all happened again. God sent him the first dream. God sent him Daniel to preach to him the first time. But this evil tyrant didn't turn from his wicked ways. It's kind of the kind of God we serve though, isn't it? God, God didn't turn away from Nebuchadnezzar after the first dream and the first messenger and he didn't listen. God is a God of immense mercy, and He gives Nebuchadnezzar chance after chance after chance. But, the wisest of the world are no good. True wisdom is found with God and His people. So he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets the dream. What then is the meaning of this dream? Well, Of course, the dream centers around a great tree. The tree is in the middle of the earth. The height of the tree was great. It reached to the heavens. It's a beautiful tree. It's a fruitful tree. It's a tree that provides food for all man and animal alike. But in verse 13, an angel comes and commands that the tree be chopped down and stripped. Only a stump remained, and even the stump was to be bound with iron and bronze, with fetters. This was to be the judgment for seven periods of time. The tree was to be portioned with the beast of the grass. His mind was to be changed from man to beast. And the point of the dream, very clearly in verse 17, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Let me just point out, that that phrase is repeated three times. Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. That's the central message that Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn. That's the central message of this dream. God rules the kings of this earth. He is the one who puts them in authority. He gives the kingdom to whom He will. It's not the people who have elected President Biden. Ultimately, the first cause is God. Despite what, it think, what we may think, despite what it looks like about who's in charge and what the nations are doing, God is the one who put them in charge to accomplish His will. That's the point of the tree. But still, how are we to understand this tree? Well, you need to know that the idea of a cosmic tree is very prominent in pagan mythology. Um, In one sense, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that he could really identify with because he was a pagan. And he knew what the tree ultimately In that sense, he was familiar with the idea of a cosmic tree. A cosmic tree is, again, mythology, a tree that that provides food and life for the cosmos. The tree is the symbol of life and the source of life on the earth. Um, In fact, it struck me, if you've ever seen the movie Avatar, a movie I do not recommend, by the way, at all, uh, but it plays off this mythology, in its closing scene, I remember when it came out, uh, pastors and preachers saying, that's a pagan movie. That's not just an idea somebody came up with. That's rooted in mythology. This cosmic tree that gives life to all. But that's what this dream, this tree represents in this sense. And, and maybe in our day we may think of it as, well, uh, some people may speak of this cosmic tree idea. and uh, Mother Nature is a term that some would use. Getting at the same idea. Or maybe how sometimes we can think of science and technology as central to life and the flourishing of life and human uh, well-being. But in this context, and even to Nebuchadnezzar, it it would be a very natural symbol for a king. Especially a king that rules the world. He was the greatest world superpower at the time. One of the greatest superpowers to ever reign in world history. But he, a king who provides provision and he provides protection and life for his people. But the problem is, Nebuchadnezzar took this too far. He took it as far as to the point of believing that he was actually the center of the universe, that he was actually the Lord of the universe. And that's why this decree comes a, a divine lumberjack appears on the scene and he drops the tree and he removes its influence. And it's glory. This too is a frequent theme in scripture. Ezekiel 17. Isaiah 2. uh, But also speak of a proud ruler. Depicted as a tree. That God chops down to humble them. Here too, we should probably think of the Tower of Babel as well. It was also in Babel. It also stretched to the heavens. It too was this kind of symbol of man's greatness. And man is the center of the earth. And it too was brought down. Because of human pride. The dream is to show him that he's going to be brought low. That he was going to lose his glory and his power and his influence. Even his very humanity. Humanity. Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that it was God who rules the earth. He needed to know that everything that he had received had been given to him from above. He needed to know that he was not the center of the universe. And that in an instant, he could lose everything. Even his own humanity. Verse 15 indicates that when it was cut down, it was to be bound with a band of iron and bronze. This suggests a reversal of the treatment that had been given to Israel. Taking them into exile, fettering them. And the ancient church father Jerome likens this language to the chaining of a madman, the bondage of his insanity. But even still, there's a stump that remains. This here should strike us for a second. This is not the final judgment, this is not a judgment without hope for restoration. In fact, even in verse 19, Daniel wishes that the dream did not apply to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, may this be for your enemies. The language is clear. He's not just following protocol. His heart comes out here. He was not happy that the tyrant was going to fall. He shows compassion to him. He evangelizes him. He tries to to save him. And again, think about this in relation to just how wicked and tyrannical Nebuchadnezzar was. This is an evil, evil man. Raging, ruling by threats, burning people alive, tearing them limb from limb, destroying their families if they don't follow his whims. But Daniel has compassion. He isn't happy that the king is finally getting what he deserves. He isn't thrilled at the prospect of judgment. In this way, he encourages us, too, to look at even the wicked men in power with compassion. And to not sit there thinking, I hope he gets what he deserves. That's why we're told to pray for kings in authority. First Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're told there to give thanks to God for them, to give thanks to God for wicked rulers. Thank you, God, for giving us wicked rulers. Not for wicked rulers, but thank you, God, for giving us rulers even though they are wicked. We're told there to desire their salvation because God desires their salvation. We're told to ask and hope that God would lead them to a knowledge of the truth. And that's modeled by Daniel here. He has compassion on this wicked king. He does not rejoice at the prospect of judgment. But also note this. He also does not fail to call to repentance. Don't think this is just a passive doormat type of perspective on the king. Verse 27. What does he say to him? He is so bold to say, break off your sins. Practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. Put off sin. Put on righteousness. You've trampled the poor to build your kingdom. Bear fruits worthy of repentance and do the opposite. But he says, perhaps God may show you mercy. Brother, don't you see that the tree is going to fall one way or the other? It's either going to fall by judgment, chastening, humbling, or it's going to fall by confession and repentance and humility. This is how God rules. This is how God's Word does not return void. This is how ultimate power is in His hands, even as we understand that He's full of patience and mercy. Again, think of how many chances Nebuchadnezzar had to listen. He gets a dream in chapter two, and then a preacher to reveal it to him. He sees God deliver the three from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is the only one who notices and has a vision of the divine figure, the fourth guy in the uh, fourth, fourth person, fourth being, walking in the flame unharmed. Now he gets a second dream, and he gets another divine preacher to come tell him its meaning. And even in this dream where judgment is pronounced, he's given the offer of mercy and repentance. And even after that, as we'll see, a full year goes by before judgment comes. What kind of God is this? It's not how we would deal with wicked tyrants. He gives this wicked Nebuchadnezzar 30 years to listen, to repent, and to turn and receive forgiveness. I mean, what if God had given Hitler 30 years to repent? It's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? We would think there's injustice with God. Brethren, in the same way, I hope you see, though, God's being patient and merciful to you if you're here today as well. What's on your conscience this morning? Where has God given you warnings? Where has God revealed your sin? Where have you perceived clear calls to turn from your sin? You being here today is like God giving you a revelation in the Bible and a messenger, the preacher, to make it clear to you Break off your sins and practice righteousness before judgment comes. Church is not a game. We're not here to go through the motions. Flesh and blood are at stake here. And you need to know for sure you will either you will either fall on your knees in repentance or you will fall. When God comes to chop you down in judgment. Which is why the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. This is Nebuchadnezzar's creation part of his gospel. How he grew to great heights and achieved great wonders. How he had it all. But secondly, after the fall, excuse me, after creation we have the fall. We're going to move quicker here. Here. We have the fall. Secondly, as I said before, God gave Nebuchadnezzar an entire year to heed the message of this dream. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar probably just chalked it up to a bad dream. Oh, I'm glad that's over with. Maybe he thought that God had changed his mind. You know how common it is for us? Um, You know, since God's judgment doesn't come upon us immediately, like right when we sin, all of a sudden we're struck with lightning. In our sinfulness, we tend to think, well, I guess God isn't that angry, or I guess God has forgotten, or I guess God doesn't care. That's the heart of the unbeliever. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's at ease here. This divine dream is the furthest thing of his mind. In verse 29, he's walking, he's taking a stroll on the roof of his royal palace. And from his vantage point, clearly he could see that he was lord of everything that he could look at. The magnificence of his kingdom was was legendary in the ancient world. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had conquered all. He had obtained all. He had ruled all. And taking a stroll on the roof of his temple, um, of his palace, confirmed to him just how good of a life he had made for himself. So he says in verse 30, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, my efforts, my strength, my wisdom, my abilities, my accomplishments. Brethren, here's a picture of pride. When we start to believe that we are the cause of our success in life, that we are convinced that our efforts are behind the life that we made for ourselves. Well, I'm a hardworking businessman and a wise investor. That's why I have more than others. I'm a better parent. That's why my children turned out so good. I have had success in life because of my discipline, because of my hard work, because of my ingenuity. Brethren, we ultimately are not in control. We're not in control. Certainly we play a role. We, we are uh, in, uh, responsible for our actions. It's not like you know, we're passive in any success that we enjoy. But we heard it or we sang it earlier, unless the Lord builds a house, all of our labor is in vain. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. Nebuchadnezzar had not learned this. So just like God had said... You know, God always tells us what He's going to do before He does it. The day of judgment is going to be a surprise on many people, but not a surprise because they didn't know that it was coming, but because sinful humanity didn't believe God when He spoke. God promised, I'm going to bring judgment. In verse 31, while the words were still in His mouth, a voice from heaven spoke judgment, and it fell. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men He wallowed on the ground, he ate grass, he became beastly in appearance, his hair and his fingernails grew. It's a tragic scene, it's a tremendous fall, it's it's pathetic, it's heartbreaking. The greatest known man man in the known world became insane. The greatest conqueror the world had seen at that time was turned into a beast, a madman. (laughs) Just how humbling is it? So, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was sovereign over the whole world, and he finds out in an instant that he's not even sovereign over himself. You can't make one hair white or black, the Lord says. Brother, the story is to give us a picture. It's meant to give us an illustration of what pride does to all of us. Nebuchadnezzar became outwardly what his heart had already been spiritually and inwardly bestial. Pride dehumanizes us. Pride drives us to insanity because it's, it's waging war on the creature creator distinction, it's waging war on reality. We heard it earlier from Romans chapter 1 the, the judgment of exalting the creature over the creator, God gives them over to a depraved mind. When in our pride, we exalt ourselves as more than human, the less human we actually become. When we rob God of glory, that is due to His name, we destroy the image of God in us. And we begin to resemble animals. Passionate, out of control, instinctive, irrational animals. Of course, we see this all around in our culture in our day. We can't even define what a man and a woman is. We can't define what marriage is. We can't define what healthy sexuality is. We can't define what human flourishing is. We can't define what justice is. I don't think we can even define what racism is anymore. It's not an accident. It's the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's Babylon reborn. It's exalting the creature over the creator. It's saying, my self, my identity, my preferences, my idea of the good life is preeminent. And that always leads to insanity. You lose your mind. And, brethren, it's not just those out there, by the way. That's the easy illustration. That's the easy illustration, but anytime we, even in here, we begin to think that the world revolves around us, that we are the reason behind our own success, that we are in control, that we deserve the glory for our uh, achievements, when we are envious of others who seem to get more than us, although we deserve better than them. The image of God is distorted and corrupted in us as well. God shows us here what happens when pride rules our hearts. It turns us into brute beasts. And yet that's not the end of the story. Judgment does not have the last word. Creation and fall, now thirdly, redemption. 34 through 37, redemption. Redemption. We don't know how long the judgment lasted. Seven periods of time. That could be 7 months, it could be 7 years. Probably most likely 7 is symbolic in scripture for a complete or sufficient full a period of time. Just the proper period of time that God had prescribed. But after these 7 periods, what happens? Does Nebuchadnezzar get his life together and repent? So that God will then show him mercy? No. God shows him mercy when he was at his lowest state. When he was still wallowing on the ground as a raging animal. All we're told is in verse 34. That when this period had come to its fullness, the end of the days. He lifted his eyes to heaven and his reason restored was restored. Look at the striking imagery here. Where were his eyes when he was walking on the palace roof? Downward. Like, you know, King David. Walking on his roof, eyeing Bathsheba. Looking at all the works of his hands, glorifying himself as the center of the universe. That's what pride does, it always looks downward. It looks downward to compare ourselves with others, to try to outdo others, to exalt ourselves above others, to fixate on the things of this world. Looking downward, pride leaves no room for looking up to God. But now, now he have been humbled like Job. He'd lost everything. Everything had been stripped away and now his reason came simply when he lifted his eyes to heaven. That's true humility. True humility. Looking up to heaven. When you realize that you can't reform yourself or save yourself or figure things out for yourself, you can't even mortify one sin yourself. What can you do when you drop to this point? you got nothing, nothing on earth that can help. You look up. God have mercy. Upon me, a sinner. There's nowhere else to turn. i got no other hope. All I'm doing is simply looking to you. It's like when Moses instructed the Israelites, look at the serpent on the pole. Don't look at the serpents that are at your feet that are killing you. Don't look down and dress the wounds of you getting bitten by these fiery serpents. Look up. Look up to the pole. And be saved. What's the first thing he does when his reason returns? He worships God. He praises God. He ascribes to God righteousness and sovereignty and power. Now he says, he knows, God is sovereign, I am not. He is the true king and I am not. He will humble those who walk in pride. And with this, God restores His kingdom. So much so that his last state is better than his first. More greatness was added to him, verse 36. Brethren, if we were to like parse out all of the implications of this episode in regards to redemption, we would be here all day, literally. Like the worst part of my prep this week was deciding what not to say because we don't have time. But just a few things we can learn from this is that this account shows us that God can forgive no matter how great the sin, no matter how hard the heart, no one is beyond the reach of his mercy. This account shows us as well that when we are comfortable and at ease in the world, sadly, that's when we're most less likely to examine our hearts and pursue change in our lives. God strips away, though, what we value and we have nothing else to fall back on, aren't we pressed with urgency then to seek Him, to listen to Him, to follow Him? How merciful God is that, that when He does not let us continue in our pride in the life of, of ease and comfort in life, but when He gets our attention so that we just look up. Maybe this should give us a different perspective on our trials and hardships. Maybe this should teach us that it's far better to to walk the difficult road if it leads us to God than it is the easy road if it leads us away from Him. Maybe this should teach us that, that, that trials are always meant to wean us off of our own self sufficiency and drive us to our knees and drive us to our Bibles. To the face of God that we might cling to Him. This account also shows us that the path away from pride. How do you fight pride in your heart and life? And trust me, it's there. I hope you don't need me to convince you of that. But how do you fight pride? Gritting your teeth and saying, I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to start talking like a humble person. You know, we've all seen that. False humility. The facade of humility. How do you fight pride? The path away from pride is always looking away from yourself and looking to God and seeing what He has done for you. That is the path to walk in humility. As long as you're considered, uh, your eyes are focused on you, your good behavior or your bad behavior, you're taking step backward steps. This passage teaches us the path of pride is to look to heaven, to look to Christ, to be led from pride to humility, to be led from the glorification of self to the glorification of God. And that's when we truly begin to function as a child of God. That's when the image of God is renewed and restored in us day by day. That's what this passage teaches us. So at the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked and pagan tyrant, confesses the true God and he receives mercy. But what did I say in the beginning? History and the book of Daniel teaches us Babylon did not change. The culture did not change. The exile did not change. The persecution did not change. Daniel still has to face the lion's den. that's the message that we need to hear how does God's kingdom advance in the world through the conversion and salvation of the most unlikely of sinners through the preaching of the gospel the evidence that God was ruling, the evidence that God would win in the end, the evidence that the kingdom of God was advancing is not in Babylon being overthrown and Christendom being ushered in The evidence is that Babylon's chief enemy of God is brought to his knees in confession and repentance and faith. That's how the kingdom advances. Well, brethren, I want to bring this to a conclusion. And I hope, as we do that, I hope that you see there's a reason why I organize this as creation fall redemption. I organized it this way is because this bears a striking resemblance to the creation account and the fall of Adam. As we conclude this morning, think about in creation that the center and the emphasis of the garden was a tree of life. It was a sacred tree at the center of the earth, the scriptures teach us. The source of that tree was life eternal. Source of life eternal eternal it too stretched to the heavens in the sense that it served to link heaven and earth and Adam was what a royal figure he was God's vice regent on earth he had dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air he was the father of all mankind he is the father of all mankind he's the source of life for all mankind and if he would have obeyed he would be the source of eternal life for all of us as well but just like Nebuchadnezzar He thought himself to be God. Like Nebuchadnezzar at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he didn't look to God for wisdom. He listened to the sages and wisdom of this world. And judgment fell and he was cut down. His punishment. For making himself out to be God also mirrors Nebuchadnezzar's punishment. He was humiliated, cast out into the wilderness with the animals of the beasts of the field. Now the dust has dominion over him. To dust you shall return. The image of God, though it remained upon him, was marred and distorted as well. And yet, judgment didn't have the last word. The tree was chopped, but a holy seed remained. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. This is how this passage leads us to Christ and how it leads us to our hope for salvation. Isaiah 6.11 says that like Adam, Israel grew up mighty and strong, but was chopped down in judgment. And yet it says that the holy seed remained in its stump, the seed of Jesse. Nebuchadnezzar's story is but a metaphor for Israel. They were flourishing. They were to cover the entire earth, but now they were experiencing the judgment of exile, and yet they were to look forward and hope that the seed remained. And that seed, then, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we find another king, a king who is over all. A king who could truly look out over all creation and say, Look what I have created for my glory and my royal residence. But what did he do instead? He voluntarily humbled himself. He was the king of all. By very nature, the very nature of God, this king became man and he left the comforts and glory of his father's side to come down and dwell with sinful humanity, going out to live among the beasts of the wilderness. Even Isaiah 53 2 says that. He grew up like a root out of dry ground and his appearance was marred. He had no form or majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. He was disfigured in a sense, appealing to the same imagery. But in his death on the cross... He lowered Himself willingly to save us from our pride. The tree of shame became the tree of glory. The earthly tree became the sacred tree. The tree that links heaven and earth. The source of eternal life for all. And so now we can look and we can see the death and resurrection of Christ. We can see and hear Him say the seed, the mustard seed of the smallest seed. That seed that goes into the ground and dies. That produces great fruit. Now will bear fruit into a tree that will cover the entire earth, Matthew 13, so that the birds of the air will make nests in its branches. This is the church. This is his body. This is the gathering of the nations. We could see this, we could say Christ has opened up now again the way of access to the tree of life. The tree that offers true life and true blessing and true eternal Flourishing. But don't be mistaken. All these things have happened. But the path of glory still leads through the valley of humiliation and suffering. When Adam sinned, he was cast out and there were flaming swords. Angels with flaming swords guarding Access to the tree of life. Yes, we have access to the tree of life in Christ, but we still have to walk through that flame. So we saw in the last chapter. The flame cannot hurt us or consume us ultimately, and Christ is with us every step of the way, but there's no other way to eternal life. Daniel, you're still going to have to face the beasts. The lions, their bark is scary, but they cannot bite. Our hope then is in that. Like Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation ended in glory. Like Christ's humiliation ended in glory. Our humiliation in this life, our lowliness, our suffering will end in glory as well. And thus we're just called to lift our eyes to see the exalted Christ as the cure for our ever-present pride. To fix our eyes upon Him and sing His praises. And even in our failures, and even in our suffering, we see the hope and the age to come that awaits us on the other side of glory. Brethren, it's my prayer today that you have seen a picture of your salvation, but ultimately, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has won for us as we too anticipate that great day. Amen. Let's pray.